Hi again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I am Dave Mitchell, and we're going to sit back tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And let's, without any further ado, bring in author, producer, and our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, good evening. Good evening, David. And don't forget, I used to go to my left very well, and I could dunk. So those are my claims to fame and life. That's more than Chris Bosch could do. <laughs> but we we won't go there tonight. Anyway, hey, uh, not a bad week for the Indians, really. I mean, if you want to look at what the Reds did, they're in the middle of this eight-game road trip. And, Mark, they didn't play very well in Arizona. That's one of the questions I, I guess I want to bring up to you tonight. But, hey, what the heck, let's get into it right now. How good is Arizona? I think they're a solid team. They remind me a little of the Cardinals. They don't have anyone that, you know, really uh, knocks your socks off. But, but top to bottom, that lineup is very solid. They, they don't... Uh, uh, they play the, the game the right way. They have good defense. They've got good pitching. Uh, I, I don't think uh, they're going to be there at the end in the West. I, I think. I tell you what, watching the Dodgers play yesterday, it is just hard to believe that that team is not going to make a run. I mean, they're just a. They got so much talent. And when when you look at Arizona compared to the Dodgers lineup, as an example. Uh, gosh, you, you'd pick the Dodgers all day long. I, I don't understand what the problem is, unless it's the manager. <laughs> and if, if there's anybody in the hot seat, it's a Dodger manager. That's that's for sure. But I, I think Arizona's sound. I just don't think they're the best team in, in the West. You know, I think the problem with the Dodgers. Before we get into the Reds and the Indians, and, and recapping what they did yesterday, we've got some sound clips on what happened yesterday for both clubs. I think the problem with the Dodgers is they took all the malcontents from Boston that were unable to be a cohesive unit with the Red Sox, brought them over to the Dodgers, and now you've got the same problem with Gonzalez, Crawford, and Beckett. Yeah, it's uh, you, you're getting into a situation there where you're you're just moving in mass the problems another team had. And apparently they're they're playing out in in La La Land, but again you look at that you look at that roster, and that that twenty five man roster, and with all the the players coming back off the DL, I don't know what they're going to do because they have some guys uh, that that are coming back on the DL that are, are being paid huge amounts of money, and there is no trade market for those guys unless the Dodgers are going to eat some huge contracts. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, it definitely will be. Well, the Indians coming into tonight, 38-36 and 36 overall. They are playing in Baltimore, a big four-game set with the Orioles. They were 4-2 and two on the week. The Reds, on the other hand, they finished 3-4 and four on the week. They're 45-32 and 32 overall. And they pulled out a big win yesterday against Arizona to at least salvage one game. And in that ball game yesterday... Mark, it was a big win, and Matt Latos was really the hero. Let's go into a recap of yesterday's contest. Latos was locked in in this one in the bottom of the third. He strikes out Delgado swinging. Then Gerardo Parra goes down on a foul tip. Then Willie Bloomquist goes down swinging. He strikes out the side in the third. Then in the fourth, Latos mows down Paul Goldschmidt. And then he fans Miguel Montero. 
And then Jason Kubel's down swinging as well. Leto striking out the side in the fourth. Bottom of the eighth, Leto still in, still going strong, pitching a shutout, facing Cody Ross. Struck him out swinging, and that equals his career high. 13 strikeouts for Matt Latos. Pitch was 95 miles an hour, right above the hand of Cody Ross. That was a perfect pitch. WLW with the call. Latos goes seven and two thirds, allowing six hits, one earned run. Bottom nine, now a 4-1 game. Aroldis Chapman trying to get the save after blowing the save on Saturday. Two outs and a man on. Will Nieves with a single into center. Cliff Pennington scores, and the Diamondbacks draw within two. Next batter, Gerardo Parra. Chapman drills him with a 99-mile-per-hour fastball on his shoulder. That's going to hurt. He would be on the ground for a little bit, but would get up and take his base, which now brings the winning run to the plate in Willie Bloomquist. Waiting on a 2-2 pitch. Here it comes, and it's flied into center field. Here comes Chew, and this one belongs to the Reds. WLW with the call once again. The Reds salvage the series finale, winning 4-2. Chapman gets his 19th save. Latos gets the win, moving to 7-1. and one. Mark, I guess listening to that recap, it raises two questions. Let's move to the first one. Matt Latos was outstanding yesterday. Could he be considered the Reds' ace yet? Yeah, I, I think he is at this point, given what's happened to Cueto this year and the injuries he's had. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, the, the stuff he showed me yesterday, he has an overhand, it's usually called an overhand curve, but he's got an overhand slider that yesterday it was unhittable. You could not hit it. The ball was, was diving, and he throws it hard. He throws it 88, 89 miles an hour, even 90 on a slider. And his fastball was 95, 96 consistently. And yesterday, as I was watching him pitch, I was thinking, that is what an ace looks like. That, that's Roger Clemens stuff. That, that is, that, that's as good as it gets in the National League right now. And if, if Cueto can come back and regain his form physically with the way Leak is pitching, and Leak pitched great ball on Saturday night uh, before losing that game in the, in the, ten, in the ninth inning, and Bailey and Arroyo, the Reds really have the best starting rotation in baseball right now, in my opinion. I don't know who, who you'd say is better. But is Leto an ace? Yes. He's the number one guy in that rotation. Well, the second question that it brings up is Araldus Chapman. He seems to have been struggling over the past couple of weeks. Is this just a case of the midseason dead arm, or is there something really wrong? No, this you don't hear me complain too much about Dusty Baker, but I think the way he's handling Chapman uh, is is not is not right. He, he's Chapman has there's nothing wrong with Chapman's stuff. Yesterday he he broke a hundred two or three times. He's ninety eight, ninety nine every time. Uh, his arms as strong as it ever was, but you cannot have a guy throw that hard and not pitch him enough where he can gain his control. They didn't pitch him for six days, and they're bringing him in on Saturday, and he was throwing the hell out of the ball, but he couldn't find home plate. So then he had to groove the, the ball to Kubel, who hit a base hit to win the game, but he lost that game by walking two guys after giving up a leadoff single. And you, you have to pitch him. So Dusty's so paranoid about tiring him out Sometimes when you when you tire out a pitcher, 
His stuff is even more electric because it moves more. Right. And I, I, I don't understand that these guys know baseball better than I do, but that's everybody knows that. And relievers historically have come in and pitched four or five days in a row, and it hasn't hurt anything. But they, they don't let Chapman do that. So what if his velocity goes down to 94 or 95? That's more than enough to be a closer. If you're throwing it with a good slider, as he has, and you're, and you're locating your pitches, you don't need to throw 98, 99, or 100, particularly when you can't control it. That fastball yesterday, when he, when he hit Manny Parra, he could have killed him with that pitch. It was 100 miles an hour, and it aimed right at his head. He put his arm up and almost broke his arm. But he wasn't even close. And that, I, I know Dusty's probably paranoid because he says, everybody says he ruined Mark Pryor and he ruined uh, Kerry Woods. But you've got to pitch Chapman more than once a week. It, it just makes no sense. No, I agree with you. And, that, and that's some of the problem that the Indians are getting into with their relief staff, especially Pistano and Perez. And we'll get into that here in just a little bit. Another thing I wanted to bring up tonight about the Reds was the fact that Jay Bruce has really come into his own over the last two weeks. Yeah, he. I'll tell you what, I've never seen such a mercurial player as Jay Bruce. When he is hot, you cannot get him out. I mean, you might get him out, but he'll hit, he'll hit a rope and somebody will catch it, you know, against the wall. Line drives. The two home runs he hit Saturday night, they were both tape measure shots. And he had gone, uh, seven consecutive hits he had were all home runs, the, the hits he had. Then he had two doubles yesterday. And he, he's, he's really toned in right now. And you, you wonder why he isn't hitting fourth, you know, behind uh, Joey Votto, because that would give Votto a lot more pitches to hit, because people do not want to face Jay Bruce at this point. But he, he's right now... I think he's a lock for the All-Star team, maybe not by the by the fans, but uh, the managers will certainly get him in. Well, we've got some trade rumors coming up for you in a little bit. We've also got our Ask Us segment, and you can talk to us on the social media simply by emailing us at askus at ultimatesportstalk.com or dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com, or you can send us a tweet at ohbbcohost. Well, the Indians, as I said, Mark, they're 38 and 36 coming into tonight. They're playing Baltimore right now and up three to two over the O's at Camden Park. They were four and two on the week, six and three on the home stand. So they've won four series in a row, which is a big thing in Cleveland. They're in second place behind Detroit right now by four games, but they really blew a game yesterday that they had an opportunity to win, and I want to get into that. But let's hear what Terry Francona had to say about yesterday's loss in Game 3 of a three-game set against the Minnesota Twins of Progressive Field. We give ourselves plenty of opportunities. We just never really cashed in. Um, and we kept getting runs on base, and we, we just we didn't do anything with it. And, yeah, yeah it was a frustrating day. I mean, Rayburn hit the one ball that we really, really leaned on it. But, yeah, we, we, did have, we did have some chances, and we just we didn't come through. It's a fast game. I don't know if I'd call Gomes a mental error. It's play at the plate, and you know the ball's coming one way, and he's blocking the plate. He he, he noticed that he 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 noticed it too late. I don't know if that's you know. I think you're getting a little ahead of yourself. The game might be a little harder than you realize. Well, 
Terry Francona was getting a little edgy yesterday at the press, Mark, about some of the mental errors that the media have been questioning the Indians about, especially one at home plate that really cost the Indians the ball game. It was a 5-4 game, and in the fifth run that Minnesota scored, it was when Ryan Domit slid into home plate, missed the plate, Jan Gomes, the catcher, missed the tag, but yet allowed the runner to come back and touch home without making the play in time because he had his back to everything. And when the umpire didn't yell safe or out, I mean, obviously you would think something's wrong. And Domit was halfway to the dugout before he realized what was going on, came back and still got in and scored the run. And that that's what beat the Indians yesterday. I, I, I'm not going to sit here and complain about Terry Francona a tremendous amount, Mark, but I've got to say that these mental errors that the Indians are making are something that he's got to get cleaned up and the, the patience that he shows towards ball players. For example, I'm going to tell you right now, Carlos Santana is not a catcher. His future, if he has one with Cleveland, is not going to be a catcher. It's going to be at first base. He is a technically unsound catcher. When he is supposed to turn glove up, he turns glove down. I've never seen a catcher mark get hit with more foul balls than Carlos Santana, and it's because he catches the ball out of position. And he he doesn't get down in a blocking position to block balls in the dirt. He tries to backhand them. And Mark Reynolds is not a third baseman either. They've brought Lonnie Chisenhall up. I think they just need to play Lonnie Chisenhall. He didn't play yesterday. He didn't play tonight because they've got left-handers pitching against the Indians, and they don't want to put him in against left-handers. Hey, this kid has either got to play third or just give up on him, as far as I'm concerned with the Indians anymore. He's had two years of opportunities to play third base, Mark, and he's got to play. You've got to give him some consecutive at-bats, I think, and especially against left-handers. You can't just keep putting Reynolds at third because Reynolds tonight came in and fielded a bunt. Buck Showalter knows Reynolds can't play third. And he had the team bunt. Reynolds comes in and throws it down the right field line. This team just makes a lot of mental errors. You know, it's it's interesting. I think the mental error aspect of baseball is not something you teach in a year. I think it's right. something that becomes part of an organization's ethos, uh, as it were. It starts in the minor leagues. And it's interesting. You and I have both played sports our whole lives, different different sports. And baseball is is the least. Do you need to get that? Sorry. <laughs> uh, baseball is the least of of sports that uses the chalkboard. You know what I mean? They. I, mean, I know playing basketball and playing football. Uh, you would have lots of time to go over game situations. And what what do you do in certain game events and that kind of thing? And it, it is it's interesting that baseball doesn't do that. It's pretty much you you learn on the fly. You learn in spring training. They spend some time on, on certain things in spring training. But uh, the the teams that win consistently don't make those mental mistakes because it's number one they're debilitating when you when you lose a game because somebody just screws up mentally. Uh, that takes a real toll on the team. So I think the Reds uh, and other teams that are playing sound baseball, it's because it's taken two or three years 
to get that into the culture. And I think for Ancona, giving him his due, he's the kind of guy that will that'll fix that, or they'll find players that that just don't make those mistakes. Right, and I agree with you on that. What what I don't like about what Francona has done, and again, I'm going to give him a pass on this for a little while, but Reynolds playing third and Santana catching, it's just not going to work. Um, they can sit there and they can put those guys at those positions for the rest of the year. They're not going to win a division with those guys playing where they're at. But when we talk about the mental errors, Mark, there's one thing that people just don't, they don't talk about when you do these mental errors. It may not lead to a run. It may not lead to an error. But what it leads to is, especially if there's two outs in the inning, you're making your pitcher, whoever it is on the mound, throw extra pitches. And in this day where they're watching the pitch count like they do with an eagle eye, these pitchers, you know, you're looking at another five or six pitches that you're adding onto their arm that could mean the difference between having to go to the bullpen in the fifth inning or in the sixth inning. And I think that's a big difference. And if you do two or three of those mental errors, you're talking about another 10, 12, 13 pitches. Yeah, inevitably, uh, it seems like every time somebody makes a mental error like that or an umpire misses a call or, or something, even a physical error, you know, the next pitch somebody blasts one about 500 feet. And, and those are very, very debilitating psychologically to a team. But if you look at the solid teams over the over the years, uh, just the Big Red Machine as an example, they never made mental errors. They just didn't. And it, it was they had smart ball players who understood the 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 moment well. They reacted to the moment well. They 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 knew when to make a throw when not to make a throw. So many young kids come up, and as an example, they look at that Starlin Castro for the, for the Cubs. All the, the physical talent in the world, but he makes some of the stupidest plays I've ever seen a major leaguer make. His decision-making. And he's lackadaisical. There's a lot of guys like that. He can hit, but and, he, and he's a decent fielder, but bad throws and throws that they shouldn't make because the runner's already crossed the bag, those kinds of things, good teams, they don't make those plays. And I, w- I want to get into this some night. Maybe we'll have a special during the All-Star game or something, but I think a lot of it has to do, Mark, with the way kids are coached in youth sports. We've talked about the short seasons and stuff, but you know as well as I do that when you've got a stud on your high school baseball team, the coach treats him differently. This kid can do whatever he wants. If he makes an error, the coach isn't going to get on him. It's everybody else that's going to pay for the star's error. And I think that's what happens when they get to the major leagues. They're so used to being able to play on their talent alone, they don't know how to play the game the right way anymore. I agree with that. And you look at some of these kids come up, and, you know, the thing, as I have noticed, with athletes in every sport, what makes an athlete typically better than somebody else is their size. I know that's simplification of the point, but you look at Matt Latos as an example. They said when he was 12 years old, he was six foot two and he weighed 180 pounds. Uh, he's just bigger and stronger than everybody else. 
and he's he's replicated. Even if a guy is short in stature, he's just big and strong. They're they're going to win out, and that that physical advantage they have makes them think, I don't have to do the little things. I don't have to learn to run the bases. I don't need to perfect my throw from whatever position I'm, I'm playing. Uh, they don't work on quickness in the outfield if they're an outfielder. And you're right. They, they, they're one-dimensional, and if they're a pitcher, forget it. All they do is throw hard. So they don't teach these kids to play baseball. And the other thing is that these kids don't play baseball like we did where you go out at 8 in the morning to the Little League Park and you're there till 6 at night and you might get a sandwich during the middle of the day and you might not, but you keep playing all day. And that's not the way it is now. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but everything is organized and structured. It's, it's league. It's elite league. And these guys don't just play baseball anymore. It becomes a career when they're 14 years old. So all those things add up to these guys being coddled, and and not working on their game, not learning the game, not even learning the history of the game, for God's sake. So you're right. It's it's a different game than it was, and I'm not saying it's better. It's just different. And I guess we have to expect there's going to be a lot of Stalin Castros out there. Well, and when was the last time you ever saw a wiffle ball? <laughs> you're right. Do you remember a wiffle ball? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, you used to go in the backyard and play wiffle ball. We used to throw curveballs with wiffle balls to guys at the plate. That's how you'd learn how to hit a curveball. That's right. But these kids, they they never even. I don't think most of them would even understand what a wiffle ball or a wiffle ball set was. But just to give you an example, Mark, of the patience that it is kind of hypocritical sometimes with Major League Baseball. You've got Nick Hagedon with the Indians, who has just been atrocious. You've got Rich Hill with the Indians, both left-handed relievers that have just been atrocious. They brought Carlos Carrasco. He's had three starts. One was bad. The second one was extremely good. And the third one yesterday wasn't great, but he battled through and actually left the game down by two runs. And today they send him down to Columbus because they need a left-handed reliever. And they brought up T.J. House. I... Again, we're getting back to I'm not quite sure who's running the asylum here or who's going to take over Carlos Carrasco's spot in the starting rotation unless they see they think Zach McAllister is going to come back off the DL in, in fine shape. Now, another reliever that the Indians have, Chris Perez, had a bad outing last Tuesday in Akron. He pitched a simulated game again in Akron yesterday said he feels good, um, but he's going to pitch again either tomorrow or Wednesday in Lake Erie, and they're going to decide then when it is that he should come back. Now, one of the funny quotes that I heard this week, Mark, was Chris Perez say that he isn't mechanically sound right now, and in order for him to come back as the closer, he wants to be in tip-top shape before he comes back. Mark, who says he's going to come back as the closer? <laughs> he wasn't pitching well when he, as a closer, when his arm was good. You know, I don't know the answer to that question, but do you remember the day, uh, it doesn't seem that long ago, when a closer wasn't a closer? You had a bullpen, and you had 
you would bring in a reliever out of the bullpen. Maybe you'd have one or two guys that were your go-to guys at the end of the game. But in many cases, you'd bring in a left-hander to face a left-hander, then go get a right-hander to face a right-hander, and then go get another left-hander to face a left-hander. And I don't know, I guess it was in the late 60s perhaps, where they went to a closer and live and die by that one that one person. But I've never understood of the last 20 years, why isn't it better? I don't care how hard Chapman throws. If he's throwing to a right-hander who's looking, who's a fastball hitter, and that's all he throws, wouldn't it be better to bring in a right-hand power baller, somebody could throw 95 or 100, and face that right-hand power hitter? I I agree with you. I mean, for example, and I know I'm bringing up a name from the past, but could you imagine Araldus Chapman throwing a fastball to Frank Robinson <laughs> and Frank knowing it's coming? Well, or how about Henry Aaron or Willie Mays? Those guys would club it. I mean, you can't throw it fast enough. And and the, it's just the whole mentality that they they go to one guy no matter what. They'll, they'll bring in a right-hand closer to face three left-hand hitters. I, I just, I don't know, maybe there's a psychology I don't get on that. But from a physical perspective, uh, I, I used to switch hit and... <laughs> I did it because I didn't want to face a left-hand pitcher. Right. I was left-handed. Well, another instance going on with the Indians' bullpen right now is Brett Myers, and you and I talked about this about a month ago, Mark. Brett Myers is eligible to come off the 60-day DL. He was eligible to come off last Thursday. And they are sending him, according to Francona, to Lake Erie this week to pitch out of the bullpen. He is no longer in their plans to be a starting pitcher. Brett Myers is going back to the bullpen for the Indians. You know, I, I tell you, when he was with the Phillies out of the bullpen, and I think he pitched a little bit with Houston out of the bullpen, he was he was tough. He he, he could throw gas. And I, I don't know if he, he still has that kind of fastball. But the thing about him was he kept everything low, and, you know, for one inning, he could come in and throw as hard as anybody. And he had a good slider. Uh, I think that's a good move, frankly. Well, we're going to go over a couple more items plus our Ask Us segment, and I'm going to talk to Mark about the movie and bring up an interview that the Indians Television Network did with Kevin Costner yesterday, who's in Cleveland. We're going to do all that right after this. In baseball news, Cincinnati rookie, 18-year-old Dylan Michael, has been named Rookie of the Year. Michael came up midseason and hit 367 with 21 home runs and 49 RBI. By winning the award, Michael became the youngest player to do so and now faces the challenge of repeating his success and avoiding that famed sophomore slump next season. Last at Bat, a novel by Mark Donahue. Available at Joseph A. Beth, Barnes & Noble, and Books & Company. And you can also get a copy of the book just simply by ordering it here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Mark, a couple of items this week in Major League Baseball, especially in Cleveland, where they inducted into the Indians Hall of Fame former general manager John Hart and second baseman Carlos Baerga. They did it Saturday night. Of course, Hart was the architect of the Indians' most successful sustained run in the franchise's history. They won five straight Central Division titles, two pennants in the 90s, and they won their first pennant under Hart and, of course, Mike Hargrove, the manager, 
in 41 years in 1995. Bayerga was the second baseman on that team. He made the all-star team in 92, 93, and 95, and he hit over 300 for four straight seasons from 1992 through 1995. Then he got fat, and they traded him to the New York Mets. You know, I'm just thinking, didn't Bayerga, uh, you might want to check his, uh, his baseball card, I think he played for the Reds for one year. That I don't know. That That's an interesting question. I would have to look that up. Uh, I know he played for several teams trying to hang on and ended up finally getting out of baseball. Another move this week, Mark, Detroit, the Tigers, they finally had enough with Jose Valverde. They designated him for assignment. So the Tigers are looking for a closer. And, of course, the names coming up right now are Jonathan Papelbon, and Jesse Craig, who, from what I understand, is also being rumored to be coming to the Reds. They're in discussions with the White Sox for him. You know, getting back to Valverde for a second, uh, has anybody fallen as quickly as he did? Boy, I mean, I, the only other the only other per- pitcher I can think of, Mark, and, and I'm serious, but Steve Blass. Yeah, maybe. Could be. That's the only other one I can think of. By the way, Bayerga did not play for the Reds. I, I, I don't know why I thought he did. But uh, getting back to Valverde, uh, it wasn't that long ago. And I mean, what, two years ago. This guy was an absolute stud and getting everybody out. Yeah, he's perfect. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I don't know if it's something, if it's physical or mental or emotional, but how can you lose it that quickly? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting case where he he has just lost his splitter. I remember Tom Hamilton just a couple of weeks ago when the Indians were playing Detroit, and he gave up two home runs in the ninth inning. Luckily, he came in in a three-run ball game, and he, he gave up two home runs in the ninth inning on Friday night, all on splitters, and then Saturday he came in to close again, and Tom Hamilton said he hasn't thrown a splitter in 18 pitches. And I think Jim Leland told him no splitters, uh, but then Sunday he came in and threw more splitters and, and blew the save again. So I, I don't know. You know, I, I look at this, and, and I think the Tigers could be a very good suitor for Jonathan Papelbon. I, I really think they're going to go out and try to sell the farm system, so to speak, to pick him up out of Philadelphia. Well, I've never been a big Papelbon fan. He blew two saves last week. Not Not that he hasn't had a good year. He has. But he has been inconsistent as well. But it gets back to to the issue that these closers become so predictable with what I don't care who they are. Even somebody like Chapman, when you know he's throwing 100 or you know he's throwing 98, you just wait for one in your your wheelhouse. And same with Valverde. He was throwing everything hard, everything low, low and outside. He had a... That, that splitter was, was a, just a, a knee buckler for, for two or three years. But these guys get known so well because they pitch every game. And you get used to it. And as, as Marty Brenneman said yesterday, I don't care how hard you throw in the major leagues, major league hitters will catch up to it. I don't care how hard it is. You can't throw it hard enough. They'll, 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 turn, they'll put the bat on the ball. So it's... Things go in cycles in baseball, and right now, for the last 20 years, 25 years, we've had this closer mentality. And I just wonder if, if a team is going to, uh, you know, ever break that and, and go back to more traditional closing. 
And, you know, it's funny, that's one of our questions coming up here on our Ask Us segment in just a few minutes. But before we get to that, Mark, uh, you know, you're you're producing your book into a movie, Last at Bat. But Kevin Costner was in Cleveland yesterday, and, of course, he's made three baseball movies, Field of <coughs> Dreams, Bull Durham, and For Love of the Game. I want to ask you, before we get into this clip of what Costner talks about making a baseball movie, what, what's your favorite baseball movie that Kevin Costner has made? Well, it's the my favorite baseball movie, no matter who made it, and that's Bull Durham. Bull Durham, I thought, was the funniest, most poignant uh, story about baseball that I ever seen. It was very realistic, and the reason was because Kevin Costner was a he's a great baseball player. He was he played minor league ball, and he 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 just when he hit he hit like a like a real player, and that's been the problem in trying to cast last at bat is finding an actor who is good enough to pull off the idea that he's a major league baseball player. Because for those of us who have played baseball, you know, at the semi-pro or pro level or college level, we can look on screen and say, that guy's never played baseball in his life. And it, it really makes the whole movie seem like a joke because you have somebody who isn't an athlete. So our challenge has been finding, I'd rather find an unknown actor who's a good athlete than a well-known actor who's a bad athlete. Boy, have you stole the thunder from this clip. Kevin Costner was on the Indians telecast yesterday. He spoke with Rick Manning and Matt Underwood, and he, he talked about an aging ball player. He was really talking about Bull Durham, but an aging ball player mentoring younger players in that movie, Bull Durham. Well, I'm still aging, you know. I, I, I thought I'd play Superman one day, but I ended up playing his dad. So you just you just age, you know, the way it goes. But uh, you know, in baseball, there's always some place for you to go if you still love the game. So if you quit being a player, you end up, you know, in some way connected to the game. It, you, you've had a, like a love-hate relationship with baseball your whole life. You know, it's like when are you ever going to have a summer? You know, I always have a kind of my own rules about it too, because you know, these guys have grown up uh, watching these movies on the bus if they were in the minor leagues and stuff and there's an interesting um, connection we have when I am asked to play at parks I always it really doesn't matter to me if the ownership wants me to play I really need for the manager and for the players to go we want you on the field right because there's nothing worse than it's like no you know play and, and it, when those guys receive me it's always makes it more enjoyable how much does the degree of difficulty go up making a sports movie well, I tell you what, the one thing that you can't do, I don't care how good an actor thinks he is, he can't act this. You can either play or you can't play. Right. You know, Olivier might have been our best actor, but he might not be able to throw a ball, and you'd know right away. He cannot act it. And so there's a belaic movie, a move out there that even the non-athlete can tell. And, you know, that's the thunder that you stole, Mark. You're absolutely right that you cannot act out playing a baseball game. You've either got to be able to play the game and, and show that you can or or you can't. And I would think that that's probably got to be one of the challenges that you guys have before you in, in putting the extras out there on the field for that movie. Well, that's why we are now, we've cast, at least uh, I can't announce it, but we've cast everyone but Dylan Michael. Uh, and we are now, our, our next step is to go to the college ranks uh, or even the minor league ranks and find somebody who's obviously a, a good athlete who, who, who can play baseball, but who's had acting experience or I, I think in a perfect world you want some 25-year-old 
graduate of UCLA's film school who wants to be an actor and also play first base on, on, their, on UCLA's baseball team. I mean, that's, that's the kind of guy you want to get. Uh, obviously, we want him to act, but the, Kevin's right. And I've met Kevin, by the way. Uh, he's right that it, it just ruins. I, I, the other night they had the babe. They had Babe on with um, who's the big fat guy who played John Babe? Goodman. I saw that movie yeah, on the Major League Network. Yeah. He, John Goodman may be the worst athlete ever to be in a sports movie. <laughs> he, he is absolutely <laughs> pathetic. He couldn't throw. He couldn't run. He couldn't swing, and it ruined the movie. It just it, they should have made it a comedy because. It it just was horrible watching him play, and it to me, when when that movie first came out, I was a big Babe Ruth fan. I I, I watched five minutes and I was done. But with Bull, but do you Durham, know what was harder to believe in that movie? What that he could be with Kelly McGillis. Yeah. <laughs> Although that, that's even worse. His wife in real life was a very attractive woman back in the day, and Babe Ruth when he was a young man. Uh, he was 6'3", he weighed about 190, he could run, he was the fastest guy on the team, he was the best pitcher in baseball, he was a tremendous athlete, just a tremendous athlete. He got fat later on, but you know when, when he was making 80 grand a year, the famous line was, he was, somebody said, well, you're making more than the president. He said, yeah, but I had a better year, and, <laughs> which is a true story. And, but getting, getting back to what Kevin said, uh, in casting the film, we are so cognizant of we want to make a film that baseball players, not just baseball fans, but baseball players say, yeah, that's realistic. The chatter in the, in the dugout, things people talk about in the bullpen, I mean, all the stuff in my book really happened on the baseball field or in the dugout or in, in the clubhouse. So we want that to be as realistic as we can make it and, of course, the story, the, the subplots of the story are, are very, very important to our story. But if you don't have an athlete playing baseball or a group of athletes playing baseball, you don't have a baseball movie, in my opinion. Well, maybe what you should do is just put out an open casting call for any baseball player out there that wants to act. Well, we're going to be doing something close to that. <laughs> we are going to have a casting call uh, in two or three cities, uh, but they have to have pro professional experience. Or at least college. Interesting. Well, we'll we'll keep a close eye on that. Hey, uh, but you, at least now people understand that it is a challenge to put people into a baseball movie. You just can't be Joe Blow off the street and walk in and play shortstop and expect people to think you're Pee Wee Reese or or Tony Canigliaro or somebody else uh, coming in to to play in a major league baseball movie. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, that's so true. And the ones that are realistic, and I remember even watching uh, the the Lou Gehrig story with Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper was a great actor. He was a lousy baseball player. William Bendix, of all people, played Babe Ruth in the original Babe Ruth story. I don't think he ever picked up a bat in his life, and it just ruined the story. But things were different back then, and and you know they cast for different reasons. But uh, you know Charlie Sheen. When he was in, in, in oh. Major League, I mean, Charlie Sheen in real life could throw a ball 88 to 90 miles an hour. That's no joke. He had a great arm. And so when he pitched, he was really throwing. He said his arm got so sore he couldn't lift it for about six months after they shot the movie. But he could really throw. But Corbin Burnson in that movie, 
he was he was a terrible. <laughs> oh yeah, he just didn't look good. No, that that's why you have to have. We're our challenge with lasted bat is we have so many players that their performance is on screen that you know you have to have ten or twelve really good players. And if you're going to have a team behind you, you, you want a major league team or not a major league team, but you want at least a minor league team behind you to make plays that makes it look realistic. And we even thought about shooting our film in 3D uh, and having the, the fan appreciate what it's like to face an Aroldis Chapman fastball coming right at you at 99 miles an hour. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to do that anymore because, uh, mainly because the, the premium people are getting for for 3D these days is, is not enough to warrant the expense and to film it that way. But what a cool experience to be sitting there in, in the audience and you see a Chapman fastball coming at you at 99 miles an hour. Okay, do you like 3D movies? No, I don't either. Okay, hey, it's time for our Ask Us segment where you, the listener. Send in your questions for Mark and I during the week, and we're going to sit down right now and answer them. So thanks for sending us your questions in, and we've got several of them tonight for us, Mark. So let's start right now, and let's get to the closer question. Sandy writes in and says, how valuable is a closer? I don't see that Perez has a lot of value. Since he's been on the DL, the Indians record would have been about the same with or without him. Well, Sandy, I tend to agree with you from the Chris Perez standpoint. He was not doing much when he was with the Indians before he went on the DL, and a lot of that, to his defense, had to do with the fact that the Indians really did not have a lot of save opportunities to use him in. There were several times, uh, at least three that I can remember, where he went at least five days, Mark, without throwing, much like you're talking about Chapman, just went through the six days. I think a closer can be valuable, but I also think that there are a lot of different instances that you can use a closer in. It just doesn't have to be for the 27th out. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think part of the problem uh, is that a lot of these closers, like Kimbrell from the Braves and Chapman from the Reds and others, they throw very, very hard and their strength is their fastball. So you could argue you bring them in three, four, five days in a row, and they're going to lose that edge on the fastball. Whereas when you have a guy like Hoffman, Trevor Hoffman from San Diego a couple of years ago, he, he, he could throw you know, in, in the 90s, 91, 92, but he had a devastating changeup. So he wasn't putting max pressure on his arm every day, and that's why he could come out and throw five, six, seven, eight days in a row. It didn't bother him. Because even if his fastball topped out at 87, his changeup was 78, and it was still breaking a foot. So he got better as, he, as his arm got more tired, but it's, it's different when you have a power pitcher. And that's why some of these guys, I guess, either the management or they feel they can't go out there three, four, five days in a row. Mark, who do you think is the best closer ever in baseball? Mm, good question. Um, I think you have to quantify it to some degree about during their peak, what guy was most unhittable. I mean, you go back to Bruce Souter, when his split fastball, when he's really the guy who started that, the splitter, he was unhittable for two or three years. I mean, nobody hit him. 
you have Trevor Hoffman. He has to be in the top two or three. Lee Smith. Uh, but, you know, Mariana Rivera is clearly, statistically, in my opinion, uh, the most unhittable guy. And if, if you go back and look at collective ERAs, uh, no one's got it better in the playoffs than him. And if, if I had to get one out in the biggest game of the year, uh, I'd go to Mariana. Okay, but the the reason I ask that question is because Mariano Rivera, throughout his years as a reliever, yes, he's a very good reliever, but he's only had to work three at the most four outs. These other guys that you mentioned, Suter, Smith, Fingers, let's throw him into it, Gossage, uh, Trevor Hoffman did worked under the same rules as Mariano Rivera, but the guys that I mentioned prior to that, if they if under the rules of baseball then in order to get a save they had to pitch three <clears throat> innings and it's a lot different when they had to throw three innings the seventh eighth and ninth than it was with Rivera coming in just to pitch the ninth inning so I I submit that Mariano Rivera may be one of the top ten relievers but I don't think he's the greatest of all time and his statistics are rather skewed well they may be skewed but that's not his fault if you're no, going I'm to I'm not saying it is. But if you, if you look at the record, I, you can't argue that he has the best closer percentage in, in baseball history. And But you also have to look at, let's say, the top five years of the, all the guys you mentioned, including Rivera. You picked their first, the best five years in a row. Who was the hardest to hit? That's the guy that is the best closer because he's unhittable over a long period of time. And I... And I I don't have the, those numbers in front of me, but I'll bet Mariano, Mariano was, he's certainly in the top three or four, to be, to be certain. And so is, so is uh, Hoffman. So it really depends on how you, you look at it. You go back to Elroy Face. Remember him with the Pirates back in 1960? Correct, yes. I think he was 21-0. Uh, and that's when guys were throwing two or three innings a night. You know, he won 21 games as a closer, as a relief pitcher. But you're right. that They were throwing two or three innings sometimes, and they had rubber arms. And don't forget, this is what people just don't understand. Back in the, the 50s and 60s, and certainly the 40s, in many cases, a pitching staff was only eight pitchers or nine pitchers. Very, very seldom ten pitchers. So you had starting guys that were expected to go nine innings every time. And in many cases, it was a four-man rotation, not a five-man rotation. And the relievers, so they had four starters, and they might have four or five, six at the absolute most, relievers and, and, four, and four starters, and that was it. So it's, it's a completely different game now when a starting pitcher is given credit for pitching six innings and only giving up three runs. That's a 4.5 ERA, and it's a quality start. And you're absolutely right. And we're getting a lot of tweets in here. Everybody agree. Everybody pretty much is agreeing with you, Mark, that Rivera is the best pitcher, the best reliever in the history of the game. I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying that when you put his stats up against the fingers, the gossages, the the uh, Smiths. And the, the suitors, like you said, their statistics are a little higher because they had to pitch the three innings in order to get a save. 
and Mariano Rivera has only had to pitch one inning. So I would say, you know, I would submit that, hey, that is just a little bit off there. But I'm not saying that Rivera is not. I'm just saying we've got to really think about those relievers also. Let's go to Andy now who sends in the question. I I missed the Manny Acta suckometer. What's your rating of Francona so far? Does he have a suckometer yet? Uh, you know, I talked a little bit about this earlier, Mark, about how, you know, Terry Francona has got the patience of Job when it comes to a Major League Baseball team. I, I still like Terry Francona. I like the things that he does. I like what he brings to the ballpark. I just think he has a little more patience than a lot of other managers would have. But in his defense, it works for him. And if it works and the Indians end up getting into September in the middle of a pennant race, there's not much anybody compl- can complain about. I, I think what T- Terry Francona has done for the Indians is, and their fan base is give them realistic hope. Now, are they the best team in the American League? No. They're not even the best team in their division. But this team can make the playoffs. And I think that's that's what the Reds did. They instilled in the organization a feeling that not only are we going to compete, we have a chance to win every year. And I think with Francona, the Cleveland Indians have put themselves in a position that over the next five, six, seven years, they're going to compete and they're, they have a chance to win the division. Things have to go well. Guys have to perform, but you've got a major league manager there you did not have there last year. Mark, let's get back to the closer thing. I just got a tweet here from Howdy76E, and I want to see if you agree with this. He says, Rivera has had far more big game save opportunities than any other closer ever. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think I think he has, and that's why his, his ERA, I believe, it's something about point zero four nine or something like that three nine under a, a third of about a third of a run <clears throat> in playoffs <laughs> and in the World Series it's even better even though he blew one uh, and the, the most remarkable thing about Rivera to me is he has one pitch he has a cut he's got a cutter that's all he's got you know it's coming and it saws off he, he, he what he's done. He's neutralized the left-hand hitter, and as a right-hand pitcher, that's key. I don't know what the numbers are, but against left-handers, I'll bet the batting average is lower than it is against right-handers. Because, well, But, again, looking back at the relievers before, the game, as you said, is different now. Rivera's got the wild card game now. Before that, they have... The, the wild card against one of the divisionals. They've got the, the, the American League basically semifinals. They call it the divisional playoffs and then the championship series. So he's got one more series to go through to have a lot more save opportunities, then into the playoff, then into the championship series, and then into the World Series. Whereas, again, I'm going to submit to you that Raleigh Fingers, during the A's uh, dynasty, he had several save opportunities. If you recall, during that 72 series, Mark, he pitched in all seven games. If you look at that 75 series against the Dodgers that only went five games, he pitched in all five games there. Um, you look at, And then when Milwaukee in 82, he was their closer then, too. So, so what's, your, yes, what's your point? 
What's your point? Because Rivera may have more big game opportunities, but it's because the game has changed and there's one more set of playoffs. Oh, come on. He, his team, the Yankees, wouldn't have made the playoffs without him. And just But that's pass. not what I'm saying. What I'm saying well, is he had more big game opportunities because there were more levels of the playoffs than there were for those guys back then that were pitching three innings for a save. But we remember him because of his success. And, and he, sure, he got the opportunities to do it, but he performed. No one has performed better in the playoffs than Rivera. No one. It's not even close. So, yeah, you have to have the opportunities to do it, granted. If, if a team doesn't make the playoffs, you can never state that he has outstanding playoff credentials. But, you but Mark, say, it's easy to have outstanding playoff credentials when you're only pitching one inning. These f oh, fingers, Suter, oh, Smith, oh. were pitching three innings. So what? What's that got to do with it? There's more innings that they have to go through more batters. Rivera, most of the time, was only facing three or four hitters. Yes, but you're also facing the, the, the toughest outs in baseball are the last three to get. He's facing pinch hitters coming up to hit just against him, and he's still getting them out. They know what's coming. He's still getting them out. You can't and so Smith and Fingers. Yeah, but you can't argue with the success. Even go back to regular season. I'm not arguing with the success. What I'm saying is, is that he only had to face three or four hitters. These guys had to face nine, ten, or eleven. I, I don't. It, it's a different. You're comparing eras uh, when you, you're trying to compare, say, batting averages and statistics from the 1930s when they didn't have. Cutters, they didn't have sliders. All they had was curveballs and fastballs against guys today. It, it, it's not a fair comparison. But by by any measure, statistical or stuff or the top five years, ERA, uh, save percentages, Rivera, no one can touch him. In, in, take away the playoffs. He's still the best reliever in the history of the game. And I just wonder, he's, he's pitching reasonably well this year, if he might change his mind and come back and pitch again next year. Well, I've asked a couple people in New York that same question, and they said, no, absolutely not, because his son's going to college. But I, I still submit that it's only because he only had to pitch one inning rather than three. You're, um, saying, you're saying that that makes him a lesser pitcher? Yeah, I guess I would say that because oh. these guys, Suter, Smith, and Fingers, and I'm just using those three as an example, okay, they had to pitch three innings day after day no, in did. order to do what they did. They, they, they didn't do it day after day. There were times they pitched more than one inning, granted. Hey, Lee Smith had f over 40 saves three consecutive years pitching three innings a game. Yes, but he, he had over, what, 500 saves as, as a career. <coughs> right, so, and Rivera's got over 600. Okay, so what? So that means that Lee Smith pitched more innings and was a more effective reliever than Mariano Rivera. No, you're, no. statistically, that is not an accurate statement. His, his statistics can't even come close to Rivera. Not even because close. Because Rivera only had to pitch one inning. That's not his fault. But that's not Lee Smith's fault either. No, Lee but you're Smith was was was... Pitching under the rules of the day. That's right. But what I'm so, saying is so you is cannot Rivera. say that Mariano Rivera is head and shoulders above Lee Smith because Lee Smith pitched two-thirds more than what Mariano Rivera did. No, that's not true. If you look at the, the innings pitch, do your homework on that one because I don't think you're right. 
statistically, by any measure, Lee Smith is not the reliever. ERA, save, save percentage, strikeouts, you name it, he doesn't have nearly the statistics that Rivera has. And I'll bet you in, in, in appearances that Rivera has more appearances than Lee Smith. Maybe not the innings, but more appearances. Which means and that's, that, that's a given. When okay, you're only pitching one inning a game, you can pitch more games. Yeah, but you, I don't understand your point. <laughs> My Rivera. point is Mariano Rivera could have an ERA of .5. Okay, that he should have an ERA of .5. He's pitching one inning. But why don't other one inning pitchers have that? No one because is Rivera close. is better than them. But when we're talking about no. the greatest of all time, you David. cannot say beyond a shadow of a doubt that Rivera is head and shoulders above a Raleigh Fingers or a Lee Smith or a Bruce Souter. Those guys had to pitch three innings a game no. in order no, to get their didn't. save. They did not pitch three innings every game. They did not. That was the rule for saves back then. No, it wasn't. Not no, it wasn't. For Raleigh Fingers, it was. Well, it Bruce Suter, it was. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure about that rule. I'll have to check on that to see when they okay, changed well, that rule. That's our homework assignment for next that's, week. That's our homework <laughs> but the point is, by any measure you want to give, uh, Rivera is the best reliever of all time, and whoever our last caller was. I agree with that very intelligent person. I'll tell you what. Here's what we're going to do, Mark. We're going to try to open the, the show up next week for comments because I just got a, a message from Greg. We're getting dozens of tweets in on this subject. We're going to open up next week's show to the listeners to talk more about this. I, I want to get their commentary on it. I'm going to do some research on this during the week. And we're going to have next week's show basically all ask us. And if we can set it up, we're even going to have phone calls next week. How's that sound? It sounds great because I know all the intelligent baseball fans out there are going to agree with me and shout you down from the Raptors and say Rivera is by acclamation the greatest reliever of all time. <laughs> okay. We'll we'll see about that. Even when I'm wrong, Mark, I'm right. <laughs> you sound like my wife. <laughs> All right, hey, what's going? We're going to have to end this Ask Us segment, but like I said, we're going to do it the entire show next week. We're even going to try to take phone calls. So tune in to us next Monday night at nine o'clock. We're gonna we're gonna get into more of this. Mark, what's the red schedule for this week? I know they're off tonight. They're off tonight, and they go to Oakland for two games starting tomorrow, and then they're off again on Thursday. So two off days in one week, very rare. But then they go to, to Texas and take on the Rangers in Arlington. And uh, these next five games, I think, uh, are, are very important to the Reds. If they can win three out of the next five and come back off this road trip uh, close to 500, that, that would be great. They're only two and a half games behind. And uh, fortunately for the Reds, uh, the Cardinals got swept in Texas this week. Well, and you know, a strange thing, Mark, we brought this up last week, but a strange thing, Mark, is that game in Texas on Sunday is an afternoon game, which is extremely rare. They hardly ever play afternoon games on Sunday in Texas. And I know at night when the Indians were there, it was 95 degrees. So imagine what it's going to be in the bright sunshine playing in Texas on a Sunday afternoon. That's why they don't do it. 
That's right. Yeah, I wouldn't want to pitch out there. No, I, I don't blame you. So they need two days off this week. They're going to need two days off next week. Hey, the the Indians, they started an 11-game road trip earlier. That, that's tonight. Uh, right now they are leading Baltimore 5-2 to two in the game, but they've got the Orioles for the next three nights in Camden Yards. And then they go to Chicago. They've got a doubleheader on Friday, Mark, then Saturday and Sunday, an afternoon game, and then they go to Kansas City next week. So next week, Mark, we're going to try to have callers, and it's going to be everybody calling in and tweeting us and emailing us, telling me how right I am about Mariano Rivera. Well, Dave, I hate to see a grown man cry over his disillusion of the facts of baseball, but uh, we're going to let our fans decide who's right on this one. That's fine. We'll do that next Monday night at 9 o'clock. Be here. It, it, it ought to be funny. <laughs> Mark, until then, thanks a lot. All right, Dave. Have a good one. Have a good week. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Don't forget to join me on our show Thursday night, the Ultimate Sports Talk Show on Ultimate Sports Talk. That's at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. You can also catch a rebroadcast of this show and also that show coming up on iTunes and YouTube. So until next Monday night, and it should be very entertaining next Monday night at 9 o'clock, I'm Dave Mitchell for Mark Donahue. Thanks a lot to you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye, everybody.